We're going to be continuing, obviously, in the book of James. You just heard the passage that we'll be looking at in James 1, 9 through 18. Uh, and we will be looking at that in just a moment. Um, it's been a while since I've been up here. It's a great privilege to be here. I, it's been so long that I was sitting singing and realizing I had no microphone. Uh, luckily, Gary had it already and set for me. So thank you for those who are serving behind the scenes. Um, and uh, thank the Lord for reminding me that I needed to have a microphone. So, uh, uh, But I... It, it's really, James, the book of James has been a book of, for me that really has had a lot to do with the formation of my spiritual life. I've learned a lot from this book, and um, as uh, Pastor Justin and I were talking, and he had suggested going through the book of James, I, I was really excited about it. And, and since that point, I've actually even uh, gained even more excitement as I've looked ahead to what we're going to be looking at through the book of James. And uh, the way it was introduced last week, if you weren't with us, um, I'm not going to spend a long time reviewing from last week. If you do uh, wish to hear what was said, how we started that off last week, you can listen to Pastor Justin's sermon online, and I would encourage you to do that. But I will do a little bit of, uh, a little bit of summary, a little bit of review, so we know where we're going as we go through the book of James. The book of James has many times been looked at as a very practical book of of Proverbs in a way. I've heard it referred to as the um, New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. And a lot of times you can look at this and there seems to be a lot of isolated things that kind of seem to give us wisdom. And I'm not saying that's totally untrue, but I think as we're going to see today and as we see throughout this whole series that we're going to see that this book actually is very coherent. It is not just a bunch of a list of things to do and not do, but this is actually a book in which is, James is writing to his readers, the early Christians, and he's saying there are ways that we need to respond to trials. And he started right off in chapter 1, and we looked at that last week in the first eight verses of the book of James. And what the title of the sermon last week was very simply, Don't Waste Your Trials. And Justin took the opportunity to speak about and look at James 1, 1 through 8. And we looked at who this is written to, uh, Christians. Uh, this is one of the youngest books of the New Testament as we see. And we see that there's a very specific uh, purpose in writing. And that is writing to a group of Christians who are undergoing trials, tests, um, hardships, all of those things are happening. And so what James starts off by saying in the book, he'll continue on the theme throughout the rest of definitely the first chapter, and I would even say throughout the whole book. He starts talking about how this is that we can make sure that the trials that we will face, notice the word will, not might, but will face, the trials, the tests, the hardships, the hard times that come from without they come from outside of us, or maybe they even come from within, which we'll look at a little bit today. All of those things uh, need to point us in the right direction, and they can't be wasted. Can't just be wasted and used and thrown away, but they should be used and be, not be wasted as we look at them. And so James does unpack in this book a lot of ways and how we can joyfully, we sang about joyful, being joyfully uh, looking at trials and what we looked at last week was very simple, that when James says to consider all your trials as joy, that that is not asking you to put on a happy face and feel good all the time, but is to think about trials in the way that God would have you to think about them. And as we think about trials, it would lead us to contentment and joy. It's a mindset. It isn't a feeling. And so we should think joyfully when we face trials. That was one of the things that was brought out. 
And then we, the next thing we looked at in the first section of chapter 1 is that in the trials we should seek wisdom. So we should seek wisdom when we face trials. And God is very clear. He says, I will give it to you if you ask. And James says, ask God for wisdom in your trials. And he will give it. Because he is a good God. He is a God that is single-minded for our good, even in our trials. And then finally, kind of where it ended, and, and there's a lot more that goes into it. Like I said, this is just a really quick recap. But we should not be double-minded when we face trials. This idea of being double-minded, two-souled, or maybe we would say it today, two-faced. The idea that there is, uh, that we can, in one sense, we're trying to say that we love God, but in the other sense, when trials come, we're not really seeking wisdom. We might be saying we're seeking wisdom, but we're really just looking for a way out. And that is a way of looking at things double-mindedly of saying one thing and doing another, or saying one thing and believing another. And now we're going to talk about, as we continue to go through the book of James, you're going to see these themes come out over and over again, that we need to think rightly and joyfully about our, about our trials. We need to seek wisdom, and we need to not be double-minded. Time and again, we're going to see throughout this book that James is going to mention this double-minded man. And it's going to be in stark contrast to what we're going to see today and what we saw last week with who God is. See, God isn't double-minded. He's not two-faced. God has one purpose. He is single-minded in his goodness and love towards us even when we face trials. That is what we need to believe. That's what we need to think, and that will lead to a joyful attitude. And so that's where we've been, and and we already read where we're going to go. We're going to be going into the next several verses, 8 through 19, and we're going to look at this, and we're going to break it apart, and we're going to look at uh, 8 through, or sorry, 9 through 18, said that wrong, but 9 through 18, we're going to look at these verses, and I think we're going to continue to see this theme as being fleshed out by James. How do we respond to trials? Specifically, we're going to look at today how to pass the test, passing the test that God has put before us. You see, last week actually is uh, one of the uh, things that Pastor Justin said as he was talking about tests. It kind of caught my attention. And I hadn't thought about it this way, but he mentioned how a test isn't there to bring out things out of you that you don't already have. But a test is there to test you on what's already inside. In a school setting, that would be in your brain. Like, you've already studied, you already should know what's here. It's not a test that's given to you that is going to have questions that you would have no opportunity to know. It's not like it's a test that's given to a kindergartner when they ask a complex algebra equation. All right, they, a test that is given is given to show and to prove what has already been known and studied and understood inside. It's not something that is trying to make us look bad or be bad for us, but in the end is a good thing to bring out what is already inside. And I thought about that, and I kept thinking about tests. And this week, uh, we're going to look at this verse, the theme verse for this week in just a moment, but I'll read it again and then I'll talk about it. But blessed is the man who, re- who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's going to be our theme verse. And it talks about this idea of a test. And last week, uh, Justin did talk about this. Uh, he stole a little bit of my thunder going ahead, but that's okay because he owed me because I stole his benediction about a month ago. So it, we're just so we know, we're all good with that, okay? We're clear. Uh, but no... 
We're going to talk about verse 12 today, and that is going to be our theme verse. But if you remember what Pastor Justin said last week, and what we see here in James, as the, the, the idea of passing the test and looking at wisdom and being joyful and not being double-minded, if we pass that test, then we will be given the crown of life. And, and that this is a reward that we will receive, and this test that we are undergoing is going to bring good. It should bring joy, wisdom, it's single-mindedness. That's what God's testing should bring. And I'm going to kind of look at that idea of a test. So maybe some of you are academic, maybe some of you aren't, but everyone I think has probably taken a test at some point or another. And we're going to kind of keep going back to that idea and how we can pass the test, how we can look at trials in the way that God wants us to look at them. And today we're going to take some time to look at that. And the main point today, the main idea that I hope that we can walk away with, that if we look at James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, is simply this. Based on verse 12 that I just read, God's tests lead to our treasure. God's tests lead to our treasure. God's testing really is treasure, and we will see that his test will lead to our treasure, and we need to believe this. We need to know this. We need to think about this, and if we do, this is where wisdom comes from, that we trust God, that he is good, and he will bring us treasure even in our tests. It'll also allow us to be joyful and wise, and eventually even not to be double-minded, but to be single-minded in our trust in God. And we're going to look at these things today. Now in verse 12, we need to see that as we face God's test, there is a way to pass it, if you will. We must respond by looking at our trials with the right perspective. Going back to the idea about thinking joyfully, we need to have the right perspective as we look forward to and see trials. If we can do that, if we can have the right perspective, think the right way, and believe the right way, then we will see that our tests are actually not leading us to pain, but are leading us to our greatest treasure. The reward of our faith is the crown of life. Now, we talked about this last week. What is the crown of life? A lot of times we see the word crown in the Bible and we just think of the gold crown that goes on the king's head. That is not the crown that is being talked about here. What we don't understand, because we don't really do this much more, although I guess when we did the Athens Olympics it happened, but this was more talking about the reward that is given at the end of a race or at the end of an athletic competition. It's like the trophy or the medal. It's what you receive when you finish something well. And so what is James saying here? It's not talking about our royalty, although we will rule with Christ in a real way, but he's talking about finishing the race, finishing the test, finishing where we are coming from, and we will finish and we will receive the reward of life, eternal life that will last forever, perfect life that will go on because we are in the presence of Jesus. See, when we pass the test, this is the promise we're given, the treasure that we're promised is eternal life, the prize at the end of the race that says we've run the race, we've gone through the test, we've endured, and when we have endured, God has given us, will give us the crown of life. This isn't so much about finding um, individual rewards when we someday get to heaven, but this is about eternal life itself. This is what we receive at the end of this race that we call life, that we face trials, temptations, where we are tempted to turn in every way. But if we can stay faithful and remain in this perspective and pass the test, we will receive this treasure that has been offered to us. And at the end of this whole sermon, 
We're going to look at this again, which Justin mentioned last week. We've got to keep in mind, though, that this is not dependent upon our ability. But this is dependent upon Jesus' gift to us. And we will continue to look at that as we go through the rest of these verses. So the perspective then. Now, what perspective should we have when we face trials? I think we see three main perspectives that we're going to look at today as we look at James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. So if, we, if you join me, you're going to read the first few verses here, 9 through 12. Verses 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers its, uh, the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We already looked at verse 12, but we're going to draw something else about it in just a moment. But in verses 9 through 12, we see this. We must have an eternal perspective. When we face trials, when we face hardships, and I could give you a list of what those might be. Maybe it's health-related, maybe it's personality-related, you've got a personal issue with others, maybe it's uh, financial, all these things will come into play. But when we're talking about trials, when we face a trial, if we want to find joy and wisdom and not be double-minded and we want to pass the test that God has put before us, we need to look at it with an eternal perspective, with an eternal perspective. And that's what we see here in these first few verses and it might seem at first, as we talk about the lowly brother and the, and the rich brother, and we think, what, what, what is this talking about? Why, this seems so random. Why are we just talking about riches and all of it? It just seems out of place. And a lot of times, maybe we've even isolated these verses outside of the context of the rest of chapter 1 or the whole book. But I think this goes directly to how we respond to trials. And the first thing we see is that God has exalted lowly people and humbled rich people. This is the eternal perspective. God has exalted lowly people and humbled rich people. Specifically brothers, lowly brother. You know, you notice that says that. And it's understood then that it would also be the rich brother. The understanding here is that these are people who know Jesus. And the point is, no matter how rich you are in this world, you are on the same level as those who are poor. The poor people are exalted in Christ. The rich people, what you have doesn't really matter. We are all one under Christ. That Christ has leveled the playing field, if you will. We're all the same level in Christ. They say the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You've probably heard that phrase before. This is what James is getting at. And he's getting at the idea that there are lowly people, poor people, there are humble, there are, there are rich people, and they need to, the lowly people need to not be so obsessed with their low standing, whether that's financial or maybe in other ways, that they somehow are finding themselves to be discontent with where God has put them. And that somehow the lowly people are, are looking at life in a way that is saying, this isn't right or this isn't fair. God says, Be a, you're exalted. Remember that you're exalted. That you aren't just what you are in this world, but you are rich in Christ. That you may be poor here, you may be lowly here, but you are rich and, and you will have everything you need in Christ. But for the rich people on the other end of things that might have everything this world says you should have and they might have what this world offers, Christ is reminding them, James is reminding them, you, you need to not, not boast in what you have, but boast in the fact that Jesus has done what he's done so that you are humbled, so that you cannot rely on yourselves, but you're relying upon him. See, it brings 
good encouragement to the lowly people and maybe a little bit of rebuke to the rich people, but all in all, it's showing us again that God's economy is not our economy and therefore to get obsessed with whether we don't have or whether we have a lot, the point is that we will all face trials. And we'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, Justin mentioned last week that a lot of things in James will be reflected in the Sermon on the Mount. That is absolutely true. And I want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And look at another verse that all of us have heard in many times as the Sermon on the Mount gets started and Jesus starts to preach to the people. And he says to start right off, the very first words he says in the Sermon on the Mount, we can't miss this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No doubt James is being thought, is thinking back to this, blessed are the poor in spirit for those is the, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This idea of lowly people isn't just about finances. That's probably, when we look at rich later on, that's probably what what James is pointing to, but it also could be much broader than that. The lowly person is someone who is poor in spirit, who is humbled by circumstances or humbled by God, however it works, but they're in that position and they're in the same level now as the rich people who have what the world says they should have, but God has humbled them. But the poor in spirit are given the kingdom of God. See, Jesus' economy is not the world's economy. And that's important for us to remember as we go forward in this passage. And the next point in this, I think, is that our temporary wealth means nothing. As the verses go on, it talks about the lowly brother and then the rich brother and how they need to boast in exaltation as the lowly person and in their humiliation as a rich person. But then it talks about how the rich will, be, will pass away. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also would the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The reminder here is very simple. Our temporary wealth means absolutely nothing. What we accrue in this life, whether money, power, status, um, uh, relationships, success, uh, popularity, whatever we can accrue in this life means nothing in the grand scheme of eternity. What matters is very simple, and that is commitment and perseverance to Christ, faith in Him through the good and the bad. And let me just say this real quickly. The rich and the poor... They both go through tests equally. Now, they might be different type of tests. The poor's test might come in, in needing to trust God for their very provision. The rich test might come in not trusting in their provisions, but in giving to others. And there's lots of tests that will come along, but nobody is immune from testing. Nobody is immune from trials. To think that somehow if I'm rich enough or successful enough or popular enough or loved enough, then... I won't have to experience hardship or trouble is a lie. Or to think that, well, I'm so poor and so lowly, there's no reason that I should even have, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to fall into trial because this is just my lot in life. All of us have trials. It goes from the rich to the poor, the lowly, the high. We all have trials. And in a moment we'll see that we all face temptations in those trials as well. And so we need to remember that our temporary wealth means nothing. And James says, look, when you're going through trials, your wealth status doesn't matter. Whether you're poor, whether you're rich, you're all in the same level because of Christ. Look to him. 
So trials and temptation will come to all people, both rich and poor. So then, in, in verse 12, which we've already looked at, God takes this opportunity through James' writing to say, okay, if the temporary wealth of this world doesn't matter, then what does? Well, we already read it, we already saw it. What matters is the crown of life. It matters to love God, to remain steadfast, to stand the test. And when we love him and we, we persevere through the things of life, the trials that come to the rich and the poor, we will receive the crown of life, the ultimate treasure that surpasses any treasure that we can have in this world. Anything that we can have here is nothing compared to the treasure that we can find in God himself. But how many times do we forget that and we decide that we're going to either as uh, a lowly person we want more or as a rich person we want to use our whatever we have, our resources in order to get through a trial or in order to deal with things. And we think that those are what we need to look for, that we need to find our security in stuff or find our security in status. But the great treasure, the greatest thing that we can any of us can have is the treasure of eternal life that comes through loving God through our trials. And so if that's true, then going back to James chapter, chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. If it's really true that the crown of life that God is going to give us through steadfastness and trials is, going to, is the greatest thing we can ever have and ever experience and ever know, then that should give us great joy even if it's the stuff we want is taken away during this life. Because God has what's best. Do we trust that he has what's best? Back in the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, many of us know this verse as well. This is one of the most famous verses, I believe, in the Bible. But in, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus has a lot to say about this idea of treasure. He says in verse 19, chapter 6 in Matthew, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus made it very clear here in Matthew chapter 6 that what matters is not what's here on this earth. The temporary wealth, the temporary status, the temporary treasures that we so easily cling to, especially during our trials, mean nothing. And that we shouldn't be laying up for ourselves treasures in this earth, but we should be looking for the treasure that is to come. It's the idea of living in eternity, not being so obsessed with today that we forget what God is doing for eternity, to be so obsessed with our life today that we forget about our eternal life. We need to not lay up treasures for ourselves on earth, but in heaven, to look to eternity. And that treasure is going to be the eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ himself, really, is the treasure that we seek. So don't waste your life. Don't waste your trials looking for anything other than the greatest gift that God can give here in the treasure that comes through eternal life in Jesus Christ. Thinking about going back just real quickly to this idea of a test in school, or a test for whatever you might be taking a test. We think about this idea of the eternal perspective you know, if you're taking a test and you, you come to a question that is really, really hard uh, or a question that's really, really easy, it doesn't matter. So let's say you take the question that's really, really hard and you know you don't know the answer. And you're like, oh, this is too bad. I, I'm not smart enough to get this. So you know what? Since I don't know this one question, I'm just going to not do the rest of the test. 
I'm not going to worry about what, I get, what grade I get because I'm so bummed about this one thing. That's kind of like the lowly person. Like, okay, well, my life is, this is what it is, so I'm not really going to care about what's coming. Okay, then the other side, though, maybe you get a, your first question is like so easy and you get it right and you're like, I am so smart. I've got this figured out. I'm not going to take the rest of the test because, you know what, it doesn't really matter. I'm just going to go through and like guess because I'm so smart I can probably just guess on the rest of these questions. And what happens then at the end, we're not looking to the end of the test. We get so obsessed with looking at that one question, whether we think it's hard or easy, and we say, okay, well, I'm just not going to do it. That doesn't make any sense. If you heard somebody did that, you'd be like, what? What are you thinking? But yet sometimes in life, we look at the one thing that's happening right now, and we say either, I'm not, I can't handle it, or we look at it and say, oh, I've got this, no big deal. And then we forget about the rest of life. We forget about what's coming. We forget about eternity. We forget about the end grade. And so this is a way that we can, as we think about this eternal perspective, you know, just in a test, we want to look towards the final product, not just look at one question. The same is true in our lives. We need to not look at just this trial or this world or what we have or what we don't have, but we need to look to Christ. We need to look to eternity. So we need to have an eternal perspective when we face trials. The next response that we should have, the next perspective we should find as we face trials is seen in verses 13 through 15. We must have an accurate perspective. We must have an accurate perspective. Now, this seems like it makes sense, but what specifically are we talking about when we talk about accurate? Well, let's look at 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth Death. All right, so we look at these verses and we say we need to have an accurate perspective. When we face trials, we need to know the truth and not make up lies. And I think that's where we get to right off the bat here in verses 13 through 15. And we first of all see that God does not have evil intentions in our testing. God does not have evil intentions in our testing. And why does James talk about this? Why is this here? Why are we talking about it today? Well, I think we have deceived ourselves, and later on James will say, don't deceive yourselves. And we have bought into the lie that somehow if bad things happen, that God can be blamed. That God is out to get me. I must have done something wrong, or something isn't... I, God just is out to get me. He has evil intentions, he wants to destroy me, or he wants to bring me to sin. And, and, we, and we might not say that, okay? A lot of us know what we're supposed to say as Christians. Like, and we'll say all the right thing. Well, what do we really believe? Going back to that double-minded thing. What do we really believe? What do we really internalize? Do we really believe that God has our best intentions at heart? Or do we believe that when hard times come, when we're facing trials, are we so tempted to look at God and say, you're not good, that you are not doing what is good for me? God, this, since I'm in so much pain, you obviously have an evil intention. See, blaming God is not passing the test of faith. James says very clearly, uh, let no one say when he was tempted, I am being tempted by God. And by the way, when he starts talking now about temptation, keep in mind this is the same word that he uses when he's talking about trials. And I don't think that's a mistake here. I think there's, the, t- trials and temptations go hand in hand. When you're in a trial, temptations come. It's, they're just there. Because in a trial, you want to find a way to get out of that trial, and sometimes the temptation is to sin to do it. And sometimes we can blame God and say, well, if God didn't want me to sin, then he wouldn't have put me in this position. 
So I can't afford this bill, so God put me in this position, so I'm going to need to go steal some money so that I can pay this bill. It's God's fault. Now that's obviously no, well, maybe you've done that. If you have, come to my office for counseling later. But, uh, but the whole point here is do we really blame God for our temptations? When we come into trials, we say, God, you aren't good, so I'm going to find a way out of this, and I don't care what I have to do, and this is your fault. How many times have we maybe justified something we've done that's sinful and somehow find a way to blame God for it? By the way, the blame game is no different than it's been since the beginning of time. Uh, It happened in the Garden of Eden, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But God does not have evil intentions in our testing. If we're to have an accurate perspective, we need to know that God is not the one that is trying to bring us to sin in our trials. That God is not going out to hurt us or to bring us into this temptation to sin. That's not what God does. He is not evil. He is single-minded for our good, and he is not tempting us for evil. See, I think, and this isn't really said, but uh, if we go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I want to go there real quickly because this is a passage many of us know, and I really did some studying into this this week, and it's really a powerful verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. A lot of us, I think, don't even understand what's going on in, t- in, in this passage, but 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, and this is the verse, and many of us know this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, in context, in chapter 10, uh, Paul is talking about Israelites and how the Israelites tested God and didn't have faith. Their test of faith, they failed because they grumbled, they complained, they gave into sexual sin, they gave into all sorts of sin, and really, in the end, still were grumbling, complaining, and blaming God, really, is what was happening. But what Paul says here is no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. See, we need to not think like the Israelites and think that God is unfaithful. God is faithful to provide for us even during our tests and even in the midst of our temptations. We must not think his, we must trust in his promise of endurance. And I want to stop a moment and say that. We sometimes look at this verse and we say, okay, well, you know, if I'm tempted, there's a way to get away from this. And maybe that's partially true. But listen to what it says here. He will provide the way of escape, which makes it sound like we're getting out of something. But then he says that you may be able to endure it. You don't have to endure something that you're out of. So what is Paul talking about? Well, again, temptation here can also be translated test or trial. So keep that in mind. When we see temptation or trial, those words are the same word. They're very closely related. And I think part of this is talking about temptation to sin. But I think a lot of times that temptation to sin is coming as a result of a trial. And God is saying you can endure it. I'm going to give you a way to escape but yet endure. And it's kind of, it doesn't seem to make sense. But I think the escape that God gives is faith. Faith and trust in God that will help us to endure it. Because we can't endure it on our own. And so when we come into trials and temptations, and we feel like it's too big for us, well, it kind of is. Because we need him. And so how are we going to have that way of escape? How are we going to endure? Well, we endure by trusting in God through the trial, through the temptation, trusting him, and know that he has the power so that we are able to endure, not through our own strength, but through his. I know that was getting off 
course a little bit, but I think it's important that we understand, even here in James, when he's talking about how God has no, he does not have evil intentions. Instead, he is faithful. And instead, he is saying, trust me, I will give you a way of an escape to get to endurance, which is me. And so even in our temptation to sin, even in our tests that cause temptations, we trust God's promise and his faithfulness. All right, we need to move on. So the next thing, as an accurate perspective, not only do we need to understand and know and believe that God does not have evil intentions, we have to understand and know that we are tempted to sin in our trials because of our own selfish desires. We are tempted to sin in our trials because of our own selfish desires. James is very clear here about how we are tempted to sin. It says it comes from our desire, our selfish lust, what we want. Our desire to sin does not come from God. Our desire from sin does not ultimately come from the devil. The desire to sin does not come from other people. The desire to sin does not come from our circumstances or our trials. But our desire to sin comes from our own deceitful hearts. The Bible is clear about this. And I'm not saying that some of these things don't have a part to play. Obviously, the devil wants to tempt us, but really, it's, he's using our own flesh to get us to desire the things we shouldn't want. Other people may say things or do things that may push us in the direction of being tempted to sin. Maybe they even give us bad advice towards sin. Our circumstances that are very painful could lead us to think that we need to sin. But all of these things are not what really it gets down to. What it gets down to is that we have a desire to get out of the trials and tests that we're in to find a way out. And usually the way out is sinful. If we're facing a problem that we think we can just get away from by sinning, maybe through pride, maybe through anger, maybe through um, stealing, maybe, uh, it doesn't matter. And going back to the poor and the rich, it might be different for the poor person who is looking for a way to steal to get ahead or looking for a way to exploit people to to get ahead. And they're so obsessed with going upward that that they are tempted to sin to get there. Or maybe it's for the person who's rich who decides that they want to just use their own pride to get through the temptation and maybe they use their affluence maybe they use what they have maybe they step on other people in order to do it the thing is when we face trials when we are when we're put under the pressure test so many times our desire is i want to get out of this what should i do to get out of it and god says just have faith and trust in me and you will persevere but many of us want to find a way out that is not the way that god has meant us to do it And we make all sorts of excuses. Well, I need to do this to get out of this. And if God God doesn't want me to be in pain, God doesn't want me. It goes back to the idea of God does not bring evil. We can't blame him. We blame ourselves. And we can't blame others. Can't say the devil made me do it. We can't say this person made me do it. Anger is one of the biggest things I hear about this with the other people thing. And this is a lie that all of us have fallen into. I'm so angry because you did this to me. No, you're so angry because you're angry. Because you want to be angry. Because your desires have somehow been put aside. And that'll be, we'll talk more about that in James as we go on because that's going to come up again. But the idea here is that we are tempted to sin in our trials because of our own selfish desires. We can't play the blame game like Eve did and like Adam did way back with the first sin. Who did Adam blame for his sin? Well, Adam blamed Eve. Who did Eve blame? Eve blamed the serpent. It was all around a blame game and ultimately the blame was put on God even when uh, Adam blamed Eve he said well 
it's the woman you gave me, God. So therefore, it's your fault, it's her fault, but it's not my fault. That's what we do, right? I know I do. Shamefully, but I do. I can find any, any other way to blame anybody but myself when I fall into sin. Because then I don't have to feel conviction. Then I don't need to repent. Then I don't need to change because if it's someone else's problem, then it's not mine. But James says, no, we are tempted by our own selves. And that then sinning in our trials will only lead to destruction is the last point here under response number two. Sinning in our trials will only lead to destruction. He says, you are tempted because it comes from within and you need to know that and you need to understand that. Let's not blame people and let's not look for a way out that is sinful because if we do, what this says is very simple. We are lured and enticed by our own desire. Then desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. So there's the sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death, destruction, Bad things. That's what comes as we choose to sin in the midst of our trials. We just got out, we just got done with looking at the book of Judges. There's not a better illustration than that to show people who are trying to get out of their trials in sinful ways. I don't know what is. And James now is reminding us and saying, look, and if you are allowing that temptation, your desire to control you, to get to the point where you will sin in your trial, then you're only leading to destruction. So the very thing that you think is going to get you out of the trial is only going to make things worse. I've heard stories before of people who have, done, who have had a physical problem and they start taking a medication to help the problem. And when they start taking the medication to help the problem, it makes things even worse. Now, I'm not saying don't take medicine, but I'm saying sometimes what we think is going to help can actually end up hurting. And so that's what James is saying. He's look, you may be tempted. Your desires is to get out of these trials and to do it through sinning. But when you fall to sin, you're going to fall to death. You're going to be destroyed. I'm not going to go back there to read these verses, but in Matthew chapter 5, we know in the Sermon on the Mount, many of us know that when Jesus is talking about the commandments that we should follow, the law and how we should live, Jesus talks about the intentions of our hearts and not the actions themselves. If you think about it, a couple of examples. Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you have committed murder. Or if you look at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery. And many times, as we go through the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does that. He says, this isn't just about your action, this is all about your heart. And that goes back to what we were talking about, about the fact that our sinful temptation comes from within. It comes from our heart. It's what we do because of how we feel and how we think. And when we do that, we can sin. And Jesus says, that is just, it's the same level as murdering somebody or committing adultery with what our heart leads us to do. But the point is, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, if you lust after somebody, it's that person's fault. Or if you hate somebody, well, that's their fault. No, Jesus says this is sin on our behalf. And so even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this idea of having an accurate perspective of where sin comes from. And so we need to have an eternal perspective, that's important, but we need to have an accurate perspective right now about what it is that our trials are going to lead us to. And if we let our desires lead us, then we're going to be led towards death and destruction. If we let the Lord lead us, if we let God lead us, then we will be end in the crown of life. I don't know about you, but I think I know which way is better. Now, going back to the idea of a test at school, uh, you think about our teachers, right? Our teachers who give tests... 
Now, I'm not saying there's not the outlier who's a teacher who just likes students to suffer, but uh, 99% of teachers, I like to believe, give tests not to make life miserable. They don't try to make it so hard that you will uh, not be able to pass unless you cheat. You know, a good, a good uh, a teacher is not going to put a test in front of you to say, ha, I'm going to make it so hard for you that you're either going to give up, throw a fit, or cheat. I, not, no teacher is going to have that intention, and God doesn't have that intention either. But why would we cheat or give up or throw a fit? Well, because we want to take a shortcut or we're upset. The test feels too hard, so I'm just not going to take it. The, you know, or we say, okay, well, so-and-so over here looks like they're not having a problem, so I'll just kind of take a peek. Now, is that this person's fault that you just cheated off their test? Will they get in trouble? Not unless they're showing it to you on purpose. But if you just look at that, that's not their fault. That's yours. And yet, then if you get caught cheating, could you blame other people? Well, it's the teacher's fault because the teacher made the test too hard, so I had to cheat. And it's this person's fault because, you know, they didn't cover their paper as well as they should have. So really, it's their fault and it's the teacher's fault, but it's not my fault. Is that going to get you anywhere? No. Same is true in life. It's not the fault, just like it's not the fault of the teacher or a person across from you. It's not God's fault. It's not the other people's fault. Even if the other person said, hey, here's my test, take a look, it's still your fault because you still looked at the test and copied it down. And the same thing is true in life. We need to not play the blame game, but we need to trust that God is not out to hurt us, that God is not out to bring sin, and it's nobody else's fault but our own. We need to get moving on to response number three here in James chapter 1 and verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, if we have a, an internal perspective and an accurate perspective, we must also have a thankful perspective. A thankful perspective is the opposite of what we just talked about. Instead of blaming God to be bad and evil, instead we believe God is good. James says, Do not be deceived. God is the giver of good, not evil. James says, God isn't looking out to get, get you. He is not evil. He's not trying to force you to sin. It's the exact opposite. God is not trying to lead you to destruction. That is your own desire that leads to sin. God is desiring to give you good. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's what James says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. God gives good. God is good. Not evil. And so we need to be thankful for that and have a thankful perspective. That'll bring us to joy and wisdom. We need to have this understanding as a thankful perspective that God is good. Now, we all know this, so join me on this. God is good and all the time. Okay, right. So God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Listen, we say that. It's kind of cool. We can chant it. But do we really believe it? God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. God does not change. Do we really believe that? Amen. I hope we do. I know there's times that I struggle, and I forget that God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. But James says it very clearly. He says, God is the Father who's giving the good, good, good gifts. He is the Father of lights. He is the loving creator 
who created all things good. Remember back in Genesis when God created the world, he said, it is good. Because God is good, he created what is good. God is the good creator, the father of lights. He created the moon, the stars, the sun, the most powerful things we can see in our universe. God created those. But unlike the sun and the moon and the stars, he doesn't change like his creation. There's no shadows. The light is always shining. God doesn't change. There's no shadow. There's no variation of turning. He doesn't change his mind. He's not double-minded like we are. He's single-minded for our good, and he loves us as the loving creator. Got to go back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says this exact same thing in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Again, verses that I'm sure you've heard before, but let's just put it in context of what we're looking here at the book of James. And Jesus is talking about asking God and and coming to him in prayer. And Jesus says, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Jesus, very clearly, way back in the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably in James' mind, as he talks about this very idea that good gifts come from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change, that there's no changing, there's no shadow, that God is the good Father who gives good gifts to those who love him. And this is obvious that Jesus agrees and would say the same thing that James is saying, and James actually is really going back to what Jesus said. Again, this idea of the test and the teacher, if we look at a test through the eyes of a good teacher, we will be thankful to the teacher for offering us an opportunity to study, to learn, to go through the the preparation for the test. And we will appreciate the chance to show what we've learned. A good teacher gives their time and attention to giving the test for the good of the student. Jesus is the ultimate good. God is the ultimate good teacher, the good God, the good Father, and therefore... He gives good and he is good. Just like the good teacher isn't giving that test for bad reasons, the good teacher is giving the test for good reasons and God is giving us our tests and trials and bringing us through temptation. All of those things are happening for our good because he is good and he does what is good. Again, God is good all the time and all the time God is good and we need to trust in that through our trials. And not be tempted to think that God isn't good, but somehow he's bad. He is good. He always will be good. He always has been good. And being good does not always mean he's not fair. Sometimes we look at it fair and we think that God isn't fair, but we're not called to see him as fair. He is good. It's a good thing he's not fair. If he was fair, we'd all be headed to hell with no hope. But God is good. And then James finishes, and this is where we finish today. Verse 18, so powerful. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is one line, but what James is saying is here's the truth. We know God's goodness through the greatest gift, and the greatest gift of all is new birth through the gospel. Of his own will, God chose to bring us forth. That word is actually a birthing term. To bring us forth, to birth us. 
We're born again. You've heard that phrase, and here we see it. Of his own will, he's bringing us forth. He's bringing us to birth by the word of truth, by the gospel, by what we know that God has taught us from the very first page of Scripture all the way till now, that he, has, that he loves us, he is good, and he has sent Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, to be the Redeemer, to be the Savior, to give us hope. Like I said, if God was fair, then we'd be going to hell because we'd have no hope. But God instead is not fair, he is good, and he sends Jesus to take our, our punishment, to take our sins so that we can have hope and, tr- and trust in him. This is the ultimate sign of God's goodness. In just a moment, we'll have an opportunity to remember that as we go to communion. This is, by the way, interesting because this is the opposite of the birth of death from sin. God has brought us life instead. Notice that James talked about this idea of sin, a desire leading to sin, and sin leads to death. And, this, and it uses, he uses the idea of this birthing analogy. But now James is saying, look, the opposite of being born into destruction is to be born into life through Jesus, through the word of truth, through his word, through the gospel, that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, that we would be uh, the, the best and the biggest and the first, that God would, would use this, and there's a truth here that this, if this is just to early Christians, it's talking about the fact that many more would come, but I believe it's even bigger than that. I believe that God is saying, you are the most important crop there is, because I have given you faith through the word of truth, that I brought you forth, I gave you new birth. That is the greatest good that we can experience. See, Jesus endured his test so that we can pass ours. That is the truth we see in Scripture. He lived as a man. He died as a man. That was a test. He lived as a man. He died as a man. He lived perfectly. He died for our sins. And then he raised again. God raised him to give us grace and forgiveness. That is the gospel. And that is good. We don't have to experience hell, which we deserve for our sin, as the Bible tells us, but instead we can experience eternal life, the crown of life through Jesus who gave his life for us. And that's just the thing. If we go back to even thinking about the test in the classroom, the truth is, and we, as we relate this to life, we can't pass this test on our own. It's like we're handing in a test that we know that we're going to fail, Right? We know we didn't know the answers. We're handing, we're about to hand in the test to the teacher. Then all of a sudden, someone steps up and says, I took the test for him and gives it to the teacher and we ace the test. That's what Jesus did. We're not, we can't pass any of the tests of life on our own. But Jesus says, I've passed the test so that you can too. That's the truth that Jesus offers us. No matter what trial, what test, what hardship, he says here, I've done it. I've completed it. I've taken the test. I've proven myself. Have faith in me. Receive my test on your behalf. That is how good he is through the gospel. So some thoughts to think about in the conclusion here. In the trials we face, are we looking ahead to what really matters? Are we looking ahead to what really matters when we face trials? Or are we so caught up in the cares and concerns of this temporary world that we are lost and we have no hope? Look ahead. Don't just trust what you see, but trust what's coming. In the trials we face, do we blame God as we fall to our temptations? Or instead, are we trusting that God is good and will see us through? We need to trust God is good. No matter what you're facing today, trust that he is good. 
He is good all the time, and all the time he is good. That doesn't change. I think a lot of us sometimes can easily get, go to the other extreme and start blaming God, but we need to remember that he is good above all things. And then in the trials we face, do we look to the gospel to find our real hope? Do we look to the gospel to find our hope? And this is not just for those of you who don't know Jesus, or yeah, don't know Jesus yet. This is for all of us. When we face trials, is our perspective one to say, you know what, I know I'm going through this, and I know this really stinks, and it really hurts, and I don't like this at all, but I can have joy, and I can have wisdom, because I know what Jesus did for me, I know who Jesus is, and I know that I'm saved, I'm sanctified, that God has me. And if I, am, if I am in his hands, if I am in his arms and his gospel is true, that, we, that he came to die for us, to live for us, and then that if we have faith and trust in him, then we can find our ultimate hope in that no matter what this life brings. Remember, in our trials, don't look for what the world has to offer, but, but look to Christ. Then my final question, though, would be for anyone here who may not know Jesus as your Savior. You don't know him. You haven't really received the new birth that is offered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's the day. Don't wait any longer. You're facing trials now and you still will face trials. The difference is going to be that you'll have a Savior who will be walking by you and beside you, getting you through those trials because you can trust Him instead of trust yourself or to trust other things. So if you are in a place where you have not received Jesus to be the person He claimed to be, the one who came to save you and forgive you from your sins, you have not started a relationship with him, then today's the day to talk to somebody about how that can happen for you. And those are the questions that we need to consider as we think about the idea that God's test is for our good. Because remember, God's tests lead to our treasure. And that's the truth that we can cling to in the time of trials. And now we have an opportunity, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, We have an opportunity to remember the ultimate goodness of God is seen through the death and ultimately resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if the four men who are serving as well as Justin would come up and join me this morning and the worship team would come up and get set. As we come to this opportunity now to remember what Jesus ultimately did, that he broke his body and shed his blood for our forgiveness, for our hope, for uh, everything and anything we could ever dream of. It's represented here. The goodness of God is physically being represented today as we have an opportunity to remember what Jesus has done. Jesus took the test and he passed the test. And now today we remember that and we thank him for that. And we dwell in the sense that God is the one who is good and he has given us all things. He gave his very life so that I, you and I can experience the treasure of eternal life despite whatever happens in this life. This should remind us as we come together to take communion, that it should remind us as we remember Jesus' death of what he's promised. He's promised to see us through to the crown of life. If we trust in him through our trials, trust in him through our lives, and his death was the down payment for all of that. It was all finished in the, in the death of Christ. And we remember that today as we come together for communion.